Hello and welcome to the Bipolar Feminist Podcast. This is your host, Nikita Ramkisun, and today we are discussing celebrity abusers and their supporters. Trigger warning. This episode makes mention of physical and sexual violence, murder, victim blaming, rape and transphobia. Anyone who knows me will tell you that when it comes to English football, I support Manchester United. In the 1990s and 2000s, the team was unstoppable, and my favourite player was lucky number 11, Ryan Giggs. Like most abusers, he seemed nice, an uncomplicated and drama-free public life, and supposedly no dirt in his past, until 2020 when he was accused of abusing his girlfriend. The Welsh international has been accused of assaulting and causing bodily harm to now ex-girlfriend Kate Greville and was also charged with assaulting Greville's sister during an incident at his Manchester home in November 2020. Giggs is also alleged to have thrown Greville naked into a hallway of a hotel in Dubai in 2017. He has denied all charges and accusations. The prosecution has portrayed Giggs as someone who used coercive behaviour against his ex-girlfriend. Prosecutor Peter Wright said that in the privacy of his own personal life at home or behind closed doors, there was a much uglier and more sinister side to his character adding that this was a private life that involved a litany of abuse, both physical and psychological. Let me make this clear. In this house, we believe survivors. And, needless to say, no matter how much I used to like gigs, I stand with Kate Greville. The same goes for model Catherine Mayoga, who was coerced into accepting an out-of-court settlement with Cristiano Ronaldo in 2010, in which she received £275,000 in return for her silence after pressing charges of rape against the striker. I also stand with Catherine and believe her when she says that she stayed silent for nine years out of fear of backlash and victimization. The case was dropped by Scotland Yard due to insufficient evidence as Mayoga had been terrified of naming her rapist when the incident occurred. When it comes to celebrity misogynists, rapists and abusers, the public tends to give them a free pass. Johnny Depp fans have vilified Amber Heard despite his abuse being proven in the court, yet her defamation is supposedly far worse. In the court of public opinion, calling someone an abuser is apparently worse than being one. Because the character witness holds tremendous power, fans often vouch for the perpetrator, who in many high-profile cases is accused of sexual harassment, domestic violence or rape by swearing he is a kind, decent person, incapable of the crime in question, because they like him. Because we have to believe our heroes are infallible, we try to reconcile a glowing portrait of the accused with the horror described by their victim. It makes sense, we believe, to doubt the victim's claims. Consider the friends and family who wrote dozens of letters attesting to the moral character of Brock Turner. A Stanford student found guilty of sexual assault against Chanel Miller, who was, in turn, sent hate mail and constant threats. A 2008 study published in Violence Against Women reviewed 156 articles from dozens of different sources and found that a quarter of them included positive comments about Kobe Bryant as a person and basketball player. Only 5% of the articles contained favorable details about the anonymous victim who accused the basketball player of rape in Colorado in 2003. The public and media passed judgment on the victim, perpetuating common myths about sexual assault that involved citing the perpetrator's sterling character and achievements as a testament to how impossible it could be for them to commit such a crime. They may be rich and famous or dedicated to charitable causes, or powerful and well-respected. Regardless of why they have good public standing, these perpetrators, like Michael Jackson and even Brett Kavanaugh, have all one thing in common. 
These men, each accused of sexual assault or molestation, did not fulfill the common stereotype about who commits such crimes. They didn't jump out of a bush or a dark alley to attack their victims. Instead, they preyed on vulnerable people in private while cultivating a virtuous public reputation. Perpetrators such as this will set themselves up as pillars of society to hold themselves above reproach. People might go out of their way to establish themselves as charitable or compassionate, so that when an allegation does come up, that's their first line of defense. Friends and family of perpetrators, along with the public, are often unwilling to see the red flags, because doing so might threaten that relationship and their own sense of safety and good judgment. People will blame the victim as an act of self-preservation. This and other subtle aspects of human psychology also work against victims. Research shows that human beings think more highly of good-looking individuals as well as those with admirable qualities, such as success and wealth, a tendency that is partly motivated by desiring close relationships with attractive people. The stereotype, known as what is beautiful is good, actually drives people to excuse or ignore behavior that contradicts their expectations. Similarly, research has demonstrated that it's very difficult to sway someone's opinion with logic or evidence when that belief is rooted in emotion. That dynamic certainly comes into play when we're trying to determine whether our uncle or favorite celebrity could have, for example, assaulted his wife. Another reason people blame a victim is to distance themselves from the unpleasant occurrence and thereby confirm their own invulnerability to the risk. By labeling or accusing the victim, others can see the victim as different from themselves. People reassure themselves by thinking, because I'm not like them, because I did not do what they did, this would never happen to me. We need to help people understand that this is not a helpful reaction. The public, by victim blaming, marginalizes victims and makes it harder to come forward and report abuse. If a victim knows that you or society blames other victims for their abuse, they will not feel safe or comfortable coming forward and talking to you. Victim blaming attitudes also reinforce what the abuser has been saying all along, that it is the victim's fault that this is happening. Side note, it is never the victim's fault or responsibility to fix the situation. It is the abuser's choice. By engaging in victim-blaming attitudes, society allows the abuser to perpetrate relationship abuse or sexual assault while avoiding accountability for their actions. The inexplicable is the support for predators who happen to be famous with often violent displays of antagonism towards the accusers cling to the supposed clean record of the abuser to establish and maintain their innocence, especially in a stigmatic society in which victims are rarely believed, even if their abusers aren't famous. And when the abuser is famous, the rush to defend them is based not just on misogyny, rape culture and victim blaming, but on absolving one's own conscience rather than standing by what is right. How can we be good people if we once loved someone who turned out to be a rapist? How can we justify our continued support for them if we know they have abused someone? How can we exonerate ourselves from our own internalized misogyny if we acknowledge that the people we hold as heroes are, in fact, trash human beings? For victims of non-famous abusers, it's a double whammy of trauma. A person who comes forward with an accusation of rape can be expected to have their history and character subject to scrutiny. Why were they drinking? Why were they even at that party? Why were they on birth control if they didn't want sex? If they didn't physically resist the assault, they will be accused of consenting. Or at the very least, confusing their attacker. If they did not report the assault right away, that will be seen as a sign that they are lying. And their social status will be weighed against that of their rapist. The victims of high-profile attackers are subject to a triple whammy because not only is it less likely that they will be perceived as credible, but they will be publicly vilified while their abuser is exalted. And don't think that race doesn't come into it. The influence of celebrity status on people's perceptions of events relating to rape was studied by basic and applied social psychology, and the findings were not surprising. 
Being a celebrity has distinct advantages, but in the hypothetical study, famous white defendants of rape were believed, whereas there was a backlash against black celebrities, consistent with averse racism theory, which proposes that although most people today are not openly racist, a subtle form of prejudice appears when people feel safe to express it and when they can justify their feelings. The prevalence of racial prejudice against black men has also prompted protests of innocence from fans of perpetrators of color, with cries of racism and the unwillingness to acknowledge their guilt based on the fact that there is inherent racism in the justice system. There's a gulf between accusations directed at Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, and Les Moonves, wealthy white men whose alleged excesses were understood as a prerequisite of their status, and those directed at Bill Cosby and R. Kelly, black men for whom success represented some broader communal hope that odds in capitalism could be surmounted. Cosby and Kelly knew this, which is part of the reason that they were so effective at manipulating public sentiment around their various accusations. From the initial reports of sexual assault leveled against Cosby in 2005, through to his conviction and incarceration, a not insignificant number of black voices on social media and elsewhere attributed his troubles to a conspiracy to bring down a wealthy black man. It's no coincidence that representatives of both Cosby and Kelly, as well as Clarence Thomas, during his Supreme Court confirmation hearings, referred to lynchings in denying allegations of sexual misconduct. It is a deflection that is brilliant as it is craven. Lynchings were so commonly accompanied by charges of sexual assault that the journalist Ida B. Wells took pains to dispel such claims in her writing. What many understand as a historical atrocity, Kelly seems to have understood as the most efficient route to reasonable doubt. It's not only misogynist men that people stand by. Whether it's J.K. Rowling's repeatedly stated views on trans people and support of other aggressively transphobic people, the racism in the Harry Potter series or casting choices around Fantastic Beasts, there are plenty of reasons for fans to pull back from Harry Potter entirely. Yet we can't seem to shake it, and it's easy to understand why. The books and movies are now beloved memories. They've influenced generations of readers. Rowling's transmisogyny is especially pointed and painful to witness as people, like myself, who have grown up with Harry and his friends, keep the themes of love and revolution close to our hearts. But Rowling has painted trans rights as somehow in conflict with women's rights, and even conservative politicians have used her comments to support their transphobic positions, and these are the people making policy surrounding trans people's rights to exist freely in society. In a letter of support for the writer, many artists said, Rowling has consistently shown herself to be an honorable and compassionate person, and the appalling hashtag RIPJKRowling is just the latest example of hate speech directed against her and other women that Twitter and other platforms enable and implicitly endorse. We are signing this letter in the hope that if more people stand up against the targeting of women online, we might at least make it less acceptable to engage in or profit from it. Rowling's trans misogyny is a danger to trans people, but especially trans women of color. Though all members of the community are at risk for hate violence, research shows it impacts transgender women of color disproportionately. Of all the anti-LGBT homicides committed in 2014, 55% of victims were transgender women, and 50% of those were primarily transgender women of color. Transgender women tend to experience hate violence to heightened degrees, because unlike other groups, it's based on both transphobia, sexism, and racism. This is the intersection called transmisogyny, a common perception that merges transphobia with misogyny. In a world where certain privileges are assigned to men and sexist attitudes about women persist, it is especially difficult for people to understand why someone born male would want to be a woman. Usually the way people make sense of it in their minds is to assume that transgender women transition for sexual reasons, and trans women, like all women, are often highly sexualized. There's a persistent stereotype that trans women are gay men trying to deceive straight men into having sex, or that they seek to sexually abuse unassuming cis women and girls in public spaces, a crime that is overwhelmingly committed by straight cis men. 
Supporters of Rowling's narrative are actively pushing this violence onto trans women and are complicit in the crimes committed against them. On the morning of Valentine's Day 2013, Paralympian Oscar Pistorius shot and killed his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp. Just five months earlier, Pistorius, known as the Blade Runner, proudly carried the South African flag as he and his countrymates walked in the Parade of Nations during the 2012 Summer Paralympics opening ceremony. During the Games, he would go on to win two gold medals and a silver. Born without fibulae and missing the outside of both feet, Pistorius's legs were amputated beneath the knees, and over the years, Having mastered the blade-like prosthetics, he became a hero in our country that is yet to grant people with disabilities the same kind of rights and mobility that his racial, financial and social privilege afforded him. While the world at large had rooted for him as an athlete, a picture started to emerge of a more complicated man, one born with tremendous physical disadvantage but into economic privilege in a country where the gap between the haves and the have-nots can be staggering. A man who was always on his mind as well as his body firing away on all cylinders, an athlete who was fiercely competitive and disciplined when it came to diet and training, but prone to insomnia, a man at ease with himself yet at times seemingly on edge. He did what big stars, particularly athletes, do. He donated to charity, met with underprivileged and ailing kids, racked up endorsements from the deep pockets of Nike and Oakley, and met with dignitaries such as Nelson Mandela. The perfect picture painted about this man was shattered, but people still stood by Pistorius. Thousands of fans all over the world maintain his innocence and sent messages of support during and after the trial, keeping up social media pages dedicated to updates on his well-being. Nike even kept its sponsorship with him going until the verdict, which the brand did not afford to some athletes who fell pregnant, one of whom told the New York Times that Nike said they would stop paying her until she started racing again. The nuance in this case is not just about misogyny that ended up in the murder of a woman, but excusing the support of a disabled person, white privilege, and extreme violence wrapped in toxic white maleness. There will always be people supporting their problematic favorites. Be it that celebrity worship makes us feel like we're taking part in their glory, are close to them, or as if they are friends of ours, or whether we support what they stand for. Showing any support of misogyny in these people who we hold as society's elite inevitably hurts victims. We need to not just hold them accountable, but let them fall for their choices. Because society should not have an elite, especially those who use their power to further abuse disenfranchised people through gender-based violence. Thank you for listening. I would like to thank my patrons for making this podcast possible. Should you wish to support me, please subscribe to The Bipolar Feminist on Patreon or donate directly to Nikki Starfish on Coffee. See you next week, where I will be discussing trans-exclusionary radical feminism.